We're in 1 Samuel chapter 11, and we are uh, going to just handle this chapter. I would like to get into Saul's coronation, but I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, we see really Saul's affirmation. Uh, we left off two weeks ago. Remember last week we had our uh, business meeting, so it was two weeks ago we left off with a rebellion in the land where some people were willing to accept God's selection for a king. Others were not, and they just saw nothing in Saul. Yeah, he's tall, and yeah, he's good-looking, but what is that to us? Does that make him a good king just because he's tall and good-looking? And his, their conclusion was to despise him. They did not honor him for his position, and uh, they were willing to make it verbally, not only symbolically despising him, but even verbally, saying, how could this guy be the guy? God certainly could not have picked this one. And this is where we left off chapter 10. And we wonder, how is this guy going to reign over a people that don't honor him? And whether that was a minority or majority, we're not really told. We really just said that some rebels, and uh, the likelihood is that was a minority. We're not sure how much of a minority it was. It could have been uh, just a representation from all the tribes. It could have been some, some of the larger tribes, like Judah or some of them, that said, this guy's a Benjaminite from a little dinky tribe. Um, you know, I know he's a really big guy, but he comes from a little small tribe. And is he really the one? Can this really be? Regardless of what the man of God said, regardless of the evidence of the selection by uh, by lots, meant none of that mattered to them. Um, they were in their state of rebellion. We come now to chapter 11, verse 1. Let's go ahead and read the chapter together. I'm going to stop in a couple of places for emphasis more than anything else. I'll just give you a direction a little bit there. And I'm not supposed to do that because it kind of gives away the message. But I think it's worthwhile for you to meditate on it while we're going. And so let's go ahead and read the chapter. Um, it is more than worthwhile for us to do so. Uh, God's word declares, Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition I'll make a covenant with you, that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, uh, Hold off for seven days, that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel, and then, if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. Essentially, we'll submit to your demands. So the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, What troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news, and his anger was greatly aroused. We don't often think of that being the evidence of the Spirit of God coming upon someone, but in this case it was. So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them, and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so shall be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. When he numbered them in Bezek, the, number, the children of Israel were 300,000, 
and the men of Judah 30,000. They said to the messengers who came, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. Then the messengers came and reported to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do to, uh, with us whatever seems good to you. The ones they were speaking to, of course, were the Ammonites. So it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he who said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. And Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Let's go, Lord, in prayer before we begin this. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word before us. We pray your spirit might guide us in its truth. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, we have an unusual source of trouble. Uh, you would expect, because the concern all along and through most of First and Second Samuel is going to be the Philistines, that that's where the first source of conflict is going to come from. But God raises up another source, and it's a very important reason why God does not use the Philistines for Saul's initial victory. In fact, I would contend that it is purposeful, that God really wanted it to happen where it did, with whom it did, to solidify the nation underneath Saul. That God would raise up an adversary to accomplish his purposes of unifying his people. And that is not an uncommon thing to happen. That is that when there's adversity, we have opportunity to do one of two things. It will either destroy the assembly or the body as they scatter. We see that almost happening here with the people of Jabesh-Gilead uh, that are willing to surrender their city to the Ammonites. Or it will galvanize them. And this is what's going to happen here. And, of course, we know because we've read this that the outcome is going to be a very positive one and one that God uses to really bring the nation together under this new king, under this new kind of government, for Israel anyway. And so we have the Nahash the Ammonite coming up. And that to you probably doesn't mean a whole lot, um, but if you think of the Ammonites, you have to think not, of the Gaza Strip and down in that area. That's the Philistine territory. We're actually on the opposite side of the Jordan. We're on the east side of the Jordan. Uh, Jabesh Gilead is in the mountains of Gilead uh, that uh, are in the uh, area uh, we would associate with uh, the Golan Heights in that area, but Gilead would be on the east side of the Jordan, uh, which means that we're not dealing with any of the main ten tribes. We're dealing with the other half-tribe of Ephraim, or half-tribe of Manasseh, and Ephraim, or not Ephraim, Ephraim would be north. And so we're dealing with this group that stayed behind, the group on the east side of the Jordan River. 
and they come under assault, and that assault uh, is really just, uh, uh, there's no battle, it's just an encampment, and so they know that it's, they're, about to be, they're about to be attacked. Uh, they don't look forward to a battle. These guys aren't the bravest in the world, and so they don't even wait for, the, for Nahash to ask for terms. It says um, they went out to them. The men of Jabesh, uh, as soon as they saw this army encamped around their city, uh, said, uh, uh, make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. Now, they have just been told all the tribes of Israel, including these ones on the far side of the Jordan, whether this was the source of the rebellion or not, we really don't know. Some people would say that, yes, the source of the rebellion was over there, and that's why God brought this to be, and we're going to see that a little bit later on, that while they're there celebrating victory over the Ammonite, we might as well deal with the rebels at the same time as though they were there in that vicinity. Possibly, but that's, again, a little bit of a stretch. Um, I'm not going to... I, I can't uh, say it's not true, um, but it's, it's not a focal point here. And so we find here these people who were just given a king like they wanted who were um, just really called into allegiance to go to your own tent, get ready uh, for a coronation. And here they are uh, making a deal with the first guy that comes down the road with an army and says, we'll serve you. We're willing to serve you guys. We're not going to, you know, we're willing to abandon that other side of the Jordan, we're willing to abandon this new king that Samuel says God wants, um, and we'll serve you instead. And uh, they were then, I'm sure, shocked at Nahash's requirement. That's fine. Sounds good. You're going to surrender to me. Um, here's my conditions. Uh, it's not good enough for you to serve me all your days, um, but I also want to bring a reproach on all Israel. The assault on Jabesh Gilead wasn't localized. Nahash was assaulting the people of God and he knew it. He knew who these people were and what they stood for. He says, my intention here is to bring reproach on all Israel. And so I'm going to have you come and do what the law says you're not, that makes you unusable really in much of your worship, and that is, I'm going to maim you. I'm going to want you to take out, I'm going to take your right eye out, um, and uh, I'm going to pluck it out of every single one of you. All right, these are guys that didn't want to fight. Remember, I mean, they're, they didn't want to fight. And now they're with, confronted with the idea that, uh, do I want to part with my right eye uh, to avoid a fight? They come... And the elders uh, talking to Nahash say, uh, can you give us seven days? <laughs> uh, maybe we will fight. Maybe we will fight, but uh, let me, let's help us, let's give us a little time to ask if anyone will come and deliver us. Uh, and apparently Nahash had the philosophy that let's go ahead and bring them all over here. Let's see. Remember, uh, these people were not led by a king yet. And whether or not word had gone out to the enemies of Israel that this was what was going on, we're not really told. Uh, but here Nahash comes against them, and they have been regionalized. They have been functioning under prophets 
or judges, I should say. And some of the judges were regional. In other words, they judged in the area of Ephraim. They judged in the area of Judah. Uh, Samuel, of course, judged all of Israel, but he was growing old. Uh, and so he sees this as an opportunity. Let's just see if there's any help. Uh, by the way, the, the uh, people of Israel were in a, state, in a condition where they didn't have a lot of weaponry. Uh, we're going to be told that here later when they deal with the Philistines, that they were having to go to the Philistines to get their implements sharpened. And so we find that here Samuel is going to have to, or I'm sorry, Saul is going to have to address this issue um, when he is confronted with it. We're going to look at that here momentarily. But Nahash is content to let them go see if there's anyone to help you. The messengers of Gabeah, which is on the east side of the Jordan, pretty far north, almost to the Sea of Galilee along the Jordan, um, send their messengers across. They have a week. They have seven days to go through this process. In the process, they arrive and they come to to uh, Saul's hometown. They come there. Uh, they come to Gabeah. Uh, they're going to confront the people of Gabeah. And you might say, well, why there? Well, why didn't they go to Gilgal? Why didn't they go where Samuel was? Uh, they went there because that's where their king lived. And Gabeah is just a little bit north of Jerusalem. But remember, Jerusalem still is not a Jewish city, really. It's not an Israelite city. That's going to really happen under David, where it's going to become uh, the capital of Israel. Combined, David is going to make that happen. Um, and so just north of that is this community, Gabeah, and there's Saul. But Saul's not in the village, and, but the messengers have shared their news to all the people. Uh, they're all weeping uh, because they recognize that there's really not much that can be done. The people of Israel have all gone to their own tents, every man to his own house. Saul sent them all away. They've dispersed. And uh, there's a question as to whether there's going to be any kind of ability to respond to this army against the city of Israel. And along comes Saul. He's not sitting at home on a throne. He's not doing any of the things yet that Samuel said he would have to do um, to be a king, that Samuel said a king would do. He's not doing any of those things. But here comes Saul um, with a yoke of oxen. He's doing his thing. He's coming uh, out in the farm. He's been out in the field working. Uh, comes in, has his oxen. Uh, he's following the herd. And he asks what troubles the people that they weep. What's going on? He hasn't heard. Nobody sent word out to Saul, our king. Nobody sent word out there to him. Just to give you an indication of who they are talking to, the probability is they're trying to deal with this among the elders of the city, uh, not even recognizing the need to go get Saul, the king. Saul arrives, asks the question, what's going on? What's the problem? What's the issue? He was told what's going on. And verse 6 becomes very important. The Spirit of God came upon Saul. Now remember, we have seen this happen in the past, that Saul became a new man. And 
we find that a regular reference here with regard to Saul as king, that he was um, infilled, dwelt, or not dwelt, but infilled the Holy Spirit on occasions. And we find him on this occasion, filled the Spirit of God. Um, he hears this. Instead of crying, you don't find him crying. You don't cry him weeping. You don't cry him uh, wailing. But rather, he is angry. Uh, angry at the situation there, angry at the people around there, angry at the whole circumstance. Whatever arouses this, the Spirit of God is in it and moves in him not to be full of sorrow, but to arouse righteous anger against a man who is not just wanting to add territory to his holdings. He's not trying to add the city. He's trying to defile God's people. And Saul is angered and enraged at this. He's enraged at the response of the men of the city, crying and weeping like there's nothing that can be done. And he takes his yoke of oxen, he, he divides them up, and he sends them off, and he says, listen, anyone that doesn't come to fight, I'm going to cut their oxen up like this. Now, to us, that says, well, ooh. Um, but your yoke of oxen is your way you made a living. It's the way you plowed your field. It's the way you took care of these things. And... We find Saul threatening that in all of these of Israel. And you might say, well, they didn't have much thought of Saul in the last chapter, but here it says that the fear, not of Saul, the fear of the Lord, fell on all the people and they came out with one consent. So I'll go to the messengers with this message um, that Saul is calling you to battle. He's calling you to come out of your houses and to gather for war. Um, we don't necessarily have a lot of implements of war, but we're coming together to go to war. And uh, the people respond. The fear of the Lord, not the fear of Saul, the fear of the Lord falls on everybody. I want you to notice the phrase that when he sends out the messengers, he calls them not to hit just himself. He says, I want you to come that Saul and Samuel, you need to come here and follow Saul and Samuel. In this period of transition, Saul is still a little tentative. Uh, Samuel is still a judge in the land, certainly the judge in the land. And in this period of transition, which hasn't been culminated, Saul has not been coronated. He has been anointed. He has been uh, declared uh, king. He has been uh, selected, if you will, in that process. But he has not yet been coronated. That's really going to happen in the next chapter. Uh, we find that he, and so Samuel still intimately involved here. And Saul recognizes that. And he says, listen, you need to come and uh, follow Saul and Samuel to battle. And the people, of course, respond. And we have them numbered for us. We have 330,000 people of the tribes gathered. Uh, they send the messengers ahead of themselves. So tomorrow we'll get there and you'll be helped. We will help you. It is coming. Help is coming. And, of course... Verse 11, Saul uh, puts his army into three companies. And I, don't, I can do that math pretty easy. 
330,000 people. I can divide them into 110,000 apiece and send them in from three different directions. I enter into the camp of the Ammonites, uh, who are apparently unprepared for them early in the morning. And uh, especially after being kind of put to sleep by the people of Jabesh Gilead, saying, uh, we'll come out to you and uh, uh, surrender to you. And you do whatever seems good. And so he's put down his... urgency of any kind of attack, assume that they didn't get any help, and instead they have the entire army of Israel uh, coming upon them, and they have a great victory. But the people aren't satisfied yet. Um, Now it has been established that this is really our king. He's led us into victory. Was that necessary to identify him as king? It shouldn't have been. All that really was necessary is that this is the man God says should rule over us. God has appointed him. And we should accept that appointment as the working of God, but we found rebels that said, no, we're not going to accept him as our king. Uh, And now that issue comes forward. Now that there is some evidence, some, some benefit, now that this king has done his job, Granted, it wasn't against the Philistines. That's still on the horizon. And Paul is, or Paul, and Saul is going to uh, uh, have some success there, but really it's going to be David that's going to finally deal with the Philistines. Um, but here with the Ammonites, Saul has, has uh, delivered Jabesh Gilead. He has uh, uh, set the city free and scattered the army and destroyed most of it. And we find now they want to deal with these rebels. Let's take these rebels and put them to death for not honoring our king. For the treacherous act that they committed of despising the Lord's anointing. Uh, Bring them forward. We want to put them to death. But I want you to notice who they went to with that request. They didn't go to Saul the one who was offended, it went to Samuel. And you can see this transition happening, this tension. Who really is king right now? Who really is the judge? Who really is the leader? Uh, We've been called to fight with Saul and Samuel. Uh, We're certainly going to see Samuel have an active role for the next two or three, four chapters, uh, still offering sacrifices, still requiring... He's going to be the voice of the Lord, if you will, this messenger of God. But yet we have this king, and Israel's still figuring this out. And so they go to Samuel and say, let's find the people who said, Saul, who shall, Saul, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put him to death. Saul intervenes. Doesn't wait for Samuel's answer. He intervenes immediately, takes some authority. Again, he is filled with the Holy Spirit on this occasion, and says, no, that's not going to happen. Not, no one's going to be put to death this day um, because this is the day of salvation. It's a time to celebrate the Lord's salvation that he's accomplished for us. And there's no way we are going to uh, deal with these issues at this time, nor necessarily uh, we find in the futures that ever really dealt with. Um, Saul is prepared to realize that um, now is the time for the nation to become one. That the rebellious people now 
have an opportunity to have a change of heart. And it's interesting the word verbiage that, that Saul uses. He doesn't say, today the Lord has given us victory in battle. He doesn't say today is a day of great accomplishment or great heroics. He says, today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. And fundamentally, what salvation is about, not just saving this one city, but what salvation is really about is taking rebellious men and converting them to being servants of God. To being those that are surrendered to God. And so Saul gives opportunity and every evidence is that there was never a time that these rebels in verse 27 of chapter 10 were ever brought to quote-unquote justice for the rebellious act. But rather, Saul says, no, today is the day of salvation. God has delivered this army into our hand. He has delivered this city from the Ammonites. Um, and really he's brought deliverance to all salvation, to all Israel and in the day of salvation is not the day to remember rebellion. It is the day to encourage repentance. It's the day to give opportunity to those who once rebelled to turn from that evil and to accept God's man and to serve him and follow that government that has been established. And so now we're going to go to yet another city. And so we go from Jabesh Gilead on one side of the Jordan. We've gone over to uh, Gibeah to hook up with Saul. They join forces. They get back to Jabesh Gilead on the other side of the Jordan. And now we're going to cross the Jordan yet one more time. And we're going to head to Gilgal for the coronation. And Gilgal becomes a very important place. Gilgal... Uh, I don't know how many of you recall what Gilgal is all about. Gilgal is a vital place. Um, it is one of those places that is not uh, uh, is not um, frequented today. In other words, uh, if you go on and get a tour of Israel, you'll not go to Gilgal. Uh, it is a place that uh, they've lost track of by large measure. We know that it is near Jericho. Uh, we know that where it's across from, this is a marker. Gilgal is a place of sacrifice and of national identity for Israel. This was the place, after crossing the Jordan on dry ground, remember the generation before crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, Joshua's generation crosses the Jordan on dry ground, it was stoppered up, and it was dry ground, and as they crossed, each tribe was to select one guy that would pick up a rock in the middle of the Jordan to be build an altar on the other side of the Jordan. And Gilgal is where that altar has been built. And so when you keep seeing Israel gathering at Gilgal, gathering at Gilgal, uh, this is what we're going to see in, in Samuel's message at the coronation, it is a place of dedication. It is a place where that generation... Um, were circumcised. Uh, apparently, throughout their wilderness wanderings, they did not circumcise their children according to the law. That happened 
to the men at Gilgal. It was there they rededicated themselves to the work that God had for them, to be the people of God, to be obedient to God. It was a place where they re- reminded that they crossed the Jordan River. This was their promised land. This was the place that was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the place where God worked and would be our Lord, our deliverer, our uh, captain. And so having getting this first victory, the obvious place to go for the coronation is to go back to Gilgal. The place to sacrifice, the place to reunify the nation, not under Saul, but under God. Gilgal is about the national identity of Israel remembering her past that she is a singular people of God. Even the ones who stayed on the west on the east bank of the Jordan, even those that stayed over there, crossed that Jordan River. Their soldiers crossed there. They went with Joshua. They said, we'll go back after we have given victory over the land. So even they were there. They have a representation at Gilgal as well. And so when, when they all say, let's get to Gilgal. Today is the day of salvation. Let's cross the Jordan, get back over to Gilgal, and there... Something wonderful is going to happen. They are going to make Saul king. He's been identified as king. He's been anointed as king, but he hasn't been made king. And so it says there in verse verse 14, Come, let us go to Gilgal, this is Samuel speaking, and renew the kingdom there. I think this tells us that this rebellion was a little more significant than just a handful of naysayers but that there was a significant number and that there was true division going on among Israel. And in order to ferret that out and to resolve that, God brings forward an adversary. This Ammonite is brought up to really bring these nations together or these, these tribes together and to bring them into unity as a single nation and renew them. Samuel recognizes what's just happened. Saul has done a noble thing. He has recognized and identified that this is the day of salvation. It is an opportunity now for all of Israel to be repentant before the Lord, which is what we're going to have, which we're going to find among them at the end of the next chapter. Israel is in a really good place right now. Not just because they beat an enemy, because they are now conceiving of the role that God has for them. That God is active among them. He gave them victory over this enemy. Uh, And yes, there's going to be a miracle that Samuel is going to work at the coronation that kind of scares them again. But when we see that the fear of the Lord falls upon the people and they follow God's leader and God gives them a victory and now it's time to renew the kingdom. It's time to bring ourselves back together instead of everyone running to his own house. It's time that we all gather together and now in unity we can make Saul our king. It would have been great if it had been done in chapter 10. But the fact is, is the extent of the rebellion prohibited it. And Samuel knew it. He says, everyone go to your house. We'll let the Lord resolve this, and he resolves it by bringing up an adversary, allowing this battle to take place, 
And now it's time to go back to Gilgal. We're going to be looking at that next week more so. In verse 15, it says, They made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. They made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. And so there's going to be sacrifice. There's going to be a speech by Saul. There's going to be national repentance at the end of this. We're going to study next week. But it all comes from an adversary coming against them. And we have now the rising up, again, not by Saul's natural abilities, not by his natural charisma, but the Spirit of the Lord coming upon him, giving him in place of sorrow and hopelessness, despair, and and worry and anxiety, oh, what should we do? Instead of all that, it places upon him anger. And his anger is not against the Ammonites. It's very evident. His anger is against his own people. Are we really this weak? Are we really this divided? Are we really this this foolish just to think that the Lord isn't going to fight for us, that, that we have no alternative but to sit here and cry about it? You get over here and fight or I'm going to tear your livelihood apart. I'll come and kill all your oxen. You won't have to worry about the Ammonites. You're going to have to worry about Saul showing up. <laughs> Killing your ox. And through that righteous anger that is stirred up in Saul by the Spirit of the Lord and the fear of the Lord that falls upon the people and the victory the Lord provides them over the Ammonites, we find that the nation is renewed. Our common response to adversity is to say, why, why, why? To cry. Right? Come on, let's be honest. We're more like the people of Gabeah than Saul. Oh, this is bad. This is really bad. What can we do? No. The response to adversity is to say, let's do what God's called us to do in the face of it and wait for Him to gain the victory and see what he has in store. Do we believe God's word that it says that he works all things together for the good of those who love him and call according to his purposes, or don't we? Do we believe what God says, that he is faithful, that he is just, that he'll care for us, that he'll deliver us, that he'll make, meet our needs? Do we trust him? And what the nation of Israel was given here is a lesson in the faithfulness of God that this generation desperately needed. Remember, they have already failed because they rejected God a few weeks earlier, or months earlier, by saying, we don't want your son, Samuel. We want a king. And God says, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. This is the nature of these people. And now, the fear of the Lord has fallen upon them, and now through this adversity and through the deliverance that ensues, um, these people come to repentance, and now they're going to be a people that trust in the Lord. We're going to have some issues throughout the rest of Samuel, but what I want to challenge you to think about is how little 
from here forward in the rest of 1 Samuel, the problem is with the people. The problem is going to be with Saul. The problem is going to be with David. They're going to sin. But think about it. How many issues are going to arise where it's the people who are doing wrong? It's hard to think. come up with anything, huh? It's going to be failure of leadership. But this national act of repentance is going to grip this generation and transform it into one that genuinely fears the Lord, genuinely wants to follow God by following God's man. And we're going to see next week that they can't undo that. They can't undo it. Um, They're in the period of the kings. They can't go back. Um, They know it was wrong. Uh, This is the beginning of that process. They're rejoicing in God's salvation. They're rejoicing in His deliverance. Um, Now they they are renewed as a kingdom. All the divisions are gone. And they recognize that the Lord is faithful. He will take care of us. He will deliver us. He can be trusted. And this spirit that we find of great rejoicing over their king that God has chosen is going to, and then just a few verses later, is going to produce a repentant people. And fundamentally, I think that is found in Saul's words. The Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. That as God delivered the nation, Saul wants to make us understand that he is also delivering individuals. And so today we don't put anyone to death for rebellion. Today is the day of repentance. It's the day of deliverance. The day of salvation. Today is the day for forgiveness and for uh, renewing our commitment to God Uh, And so let's go to Gilgal and do that. We can do that on an individual basis. We'll do that as tribes, as families. um, But we do that as a nation. And Samuel directs them there. Let's go back to Gilgal where our season in this land really started. And remember. And Samuel's going to lead them in that remembrance. We're going to look at it next week. Um, But we find that this is how God restores. It's not by... um, an easy process of everyone, you know, look at Saul, and Saul goes around and hands out um, cigars to everybody, and everyone's happy now. No, it comes through opposition. Brings them together, unifies them, and reminds them of God's faithfulness. And this, ultimately, the specifics of God's purposes are varied, but ultimately... When we encounter opposition as a people of God, as individuals, this is still the goal. God's objective is to teach us something. And that is, He can be trusted. He will care for us. He will save us. We need to serve Him. And if that means serving a king that we formerly despised, then we'll do so. We'll follow the leaders God's brought into our life And we'll rejoice greatly in the conclusion, knowing God's hand, that he will do as he has declared. And Israel lost track of that aspect. 
And through this, King Nahash, the Ammonite, through that opposition, it was reestablished for them. And I would contend that when we encounter opposition, we should, just like the disciples in Acts, embrace it and rejoice greatly in it, for through it, God demonstrates His power. Without opposition, we find Israel getting into trouble (laughs) and running a course that leads them into judgment. But here, through this opposition, they recognize the man of God. They're ready to listen to Him, to follow Him. Salvation is accomplished, and the kingdom is renewed. And we're going to be looking at that a little bit more next week. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank You for Your love for us for your word before us. And we do thank you that as you were faithful then, you are faithful now. We see your hand throughout this chapter very clearly declared. We pray for your spirit to not just fill us as in the Old Testament, but as your promises that he would dwell in us, that he would fill us as well as we submit ourselves to his control. You might raise us up to not be people of despair, of anxiety, of weakness, but that we would be a people of strength, of confidence, that you are still God, that nothing that we confront can overwhelm us, that not, not even death itself, for you have conquered every enemy already, including death and our sin. And so we pray that we might, like the people here, fear you, now let the fear of you come upon us. That we might see a day of salvation again and again in our lives and rejoice greatly in you. And Lord, we pray that as we encounter opposition, you might keep this in our forefront of our thinking. That you are at work to do great things in our midst. Lord, our prayer is that we might respond as this generation responded to your working in their midst. In Christ Jesus' name.